Alright everybody, it's finally happened. The Metal Hand of God podcast has finally got an online merch store. It's located at tpublic.com. That's right, tpublic, T-E-E, public.com. Go there, to their website, type in M-H-O-G, and a variety of art designs will pop up where you can put them on t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, Pandemic masks. That's right. We also have pandemic masks. The new fashion accessory for the year 2020 into 2021. We have wall art, notebooks, mugs, pillows, pins, you name it. Hey, you want stickers? Magnets? How about a phone case? That's right. You can get an MHOG phone case just by going to tpublic.com. A variety of sizes and colors, and the quality is Hands down, the best you're going to find. That's right. MHOG Merch Store at tpublic.com. You're part of the family. Might as well really be part of the family and grab yourself an MHOG tea at tpublic.com. Thanks for listening to the MHOG Podcast. And for all your support through the years... We want to see those t-shirts outside, so go to Tee Public. Order your MHOG merch today. TeePublic.com Never give up. Never surrender. Hi, this is Nicholas Vince, and you're listening to the Metal Hand of God podcast. Oh, no, not again. Don't worry if you don't speak it out alive. We'll give you your money back. Guaranteed. Welcome back to the Metal Land of God podcast. I am your host, Wayne, and with me, as always, is the lovely. Great, I'm lovely. I'm the rub guy. <laughs> and today we have actor Andre Gower with us. What's up, my friend? Uh, I am doing so far so good. We'll see if that changes. That's right. Yeah, there okay. you go. <laughs> it's all up to you guys. It is all, all up, up to you. us. Well, all no right. Pressure. For the people, no for the people in the stands and the far off reaches over there, let everybody know. Uh, actually, what you do and who you well, are, I, what you've been in, and all that good stuff. You know. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll do. I'll do that. Just, to, um, just to kind of give them a, you know, just to kind of give them a brief, like, hey, this is who I am. Because I'm going to add all kind of shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, as you did mention, I, uh, I am Andre Gower and, uh, <laughs> uh, I am, I am known for, you know, many things, some of it being, you know, an actor, some of it for being uh, a filmmaker, some of it for being uh, a producer and creator, uh, mostly from my younger years of being on a ton of television and film stuff. Um, and and then a whole bunch of different stuff in between and in and out and back and forth. But uh, currently, uh, most people know me from a movie that no one saw in 1987 called The Monster Squad. Uh, but over the years has grown a gigantic worldwide uh, audience of uh, super loyal and rabid Monster Squad fans. And uh, currently right now, have. we are um, 
uh, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, kicking off and promoting the release of a documentary that was uh, uh, that we made a couple of years ago called Wolfman's Got Nards, nice. uh, which is uh, about how things like cinema or a movie or whatever uh, piece of kind of culture can impact you and affect your life. And this one's all told through Monster Squad fans and um, goes into the fandom and the the kind of resurrection of a dead movie over 20 years and you know how it grows to be kind of uh, something very important to people no matter if they were just fans of it or whether they were in it or they worked on it right. uh, and uh, it's been a fun ride man let I me never oh go ahead, Rob. Go ahead Wayne, sorry. i was just to say man let me tell you like I was gonna say... <laughs> we're all talking on top of each other um, Sorry. No, it's okay. No, it's okay. That that film, man, like uh, the Monster Squad, was one of my all time favorites as a kid. Like seriously, like uh, I mean, I believe we're around the same age. So watching that film was just, man, because I was a huge, you know, Universal Monsters fan, and you know, mm-hmm. man, who wasn't at you know our age and doing that stuff, and I was just kind of like, I- I'm surprised that film was not more recognizable till now. If you know what I mean. Well, I, th- I think a lot of um, a lot of people that were just kind of audience, you know, uh, viewers that you know that became fans, you know, feel the same way. Uh, they didn't. They never knew, uh, you know, if they happened to see it in the theater, which was a, a, just a handful of folk. Um, you know, they just thought it was this awesome movie they saw on a Saturday afternoon, and right. you know, went and ran and tell that in the neighborhood, and and got their friends from the schoolyard to go see it the next weekend, and it was no longer there, and so they had to kind of hold on to you know this movie that they saw and wait for it to you know release on HBO or their local video store, and then they got to share it with you know more people, and uh, that's really kind of where Monster Squad ended up finding this, uh, you know, a wider fan base at the time. And, you know, it was HBO and, um, you know, taping it off HBO and sharing it around your neighborhood and then, you know, going to the local video store every weekend and renting it. And it's an interesting dynamic of, you know, kind of the lifespan of a film uh, and the people that made it and were in it uh, and, you know, kind of really its resurrection and kind of its um, kind of resurgence uh, after 2006, 2007. Well, you were kind of a early, I would, I'm going to call you an early power icon when it came to uh, the, the acting gig. Uh, you, you, you came into what, what you around you started probably right around preteen for sure. What were you like? Well, I mean, in that in that kind of world of being known a little bit, yeah, preteen. But I really started working when I was five. Wow. Um, you know, which is you know rather young. Uh, but you know, a lot of us did. You know, at that time. And so you know, because I was I was born and raised in L.A., so it wasn't uh, something that you know you had to relocate and move to. And uh, my sister was actually in the business, uh, you know, for a long time, and she's a few years older than I was. So that was sort of my uh, my gateway into being around. You know, entertainment industry oh, that's cool uh you know and thanks to you know my, my mother and 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 my dad you know they were uh, you know they were all a part of it um not they, they, my parents weren't, but they were supportive so of, much of time. Their kids being, yeah. yeah they i mean that to you to go and do all those uh the screenings especially at a young age and everything must have been must have been crazy for you especially as a kid to be walking into i mean i know i, I was when i was a young kid to walk onto a movie set must have been magic for you you know it. What it was, it, it, it's all very interesting. And and you know, like we were saying, you know, starting at you know five, five, six years old, you don't. It's interesting, but it's not jaw dropping because you're too young to realize that it's fantastical. Right. Uh, it's just something okay. that you're experiencing, so you think it's the world. And you know, you have to get a little bit older to realize, like, oh, these things are separate. And um, you know, but it was it was just something that. You know, a lot of kids, you know, either from L.A. or not L.A., they get into the business because their parents want them to or or, or sometimes need them to. Uh, some some kids don't take to it as well. Some some kids just dive right in and do it. And um, I just think it was something that was I always say that I was sort of like a duck in water, you know, at a young age because it, it wasn't it, it wasn't foreign because I didn't know it. I just learned it as you go along. And I had a great, you know, what I say, you know, non-industry or, or regular life on the outside. And I played <sighs> in the neighborhood and rode bikes and right. went to school. I loved going to school. And so I had a great, you know, it was, it was fairly balanced, you know, throughout my entire childhood. Oh, that's good. 
That is that 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 makes it a little bit easier, I think, uh, when you can have at least a little bit of a semblance of a normal life. I would think. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it it certainly does, and that was one a focus that myself always knew I wanted, and two that luckily my parents. Uh, were game to because other kids' parents that you know we all grew up with in this industry didn't give a shit about anything else except for you know their kids in, in, in the business and, yeah. and working on that and they didn't have a lot of experiences in the neighborhood or at regular school or you know getting you know growing up with friends and you know learning how to pal around and ex going on adventures and experiences it was all just about grinding it out in in this in this industry which is a, a professional industry and it's hard to be a professional when you're six seven nine years old you know right yeah and we see where a lot of those child actors went too so <laughs> now you you uh when you got the uh the gig when you got the monster squad gig um you were working with a lot of amazing people, studio effects people. You were working with some amazing actors um, and everything else. Uh, I notice one thing with that movie is your name is right there. I mean, that's like one of the first ones, if not the first one you see when you when that movie starts up. Yes. That must have been <laughs> awesome, though. I mean, it's just such a cool thing to be. You're, it's like you're I mean, you're right there. That's your I mean. This kid is going everywhere. I'm first on the list right now. You know it is, and you know it, it's cool to see. But then it's also, you know, when when you understand credits, you know, on yeah. film and television, you know, those are are very important to people that uh, like agents and managers and <laughs> right. other productions right. because you know it means something. And but what it means as the performer, it means this is kind of. Um, uh, you're you're kind of important to the overall everything, and you've got to, you know, show up and know what you're doing, and uh, you know, knock it out of the park on a daily basis if you can. Uh, but you know, it's it's you know, being the first name on a screen is called first card, and uh, you know whether that's in TV or in film, it's very cool. And then you know, the only thing better than first card in a film or TV is being uh, uh, prior to the title. <laughs> you know, right, right, like, right. Uh, oh, yeah, I can see that. You know, Wayne Barris in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, Jumanji. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things. So uh, it was, and you know, be, you know, we got that. Uh, we shot Monster Squad when I was thirteen. Uh, I had done a you know a lot of a, a few films before that and a, and a ton of television and a bazillion commercials. Uh, but you know it's different when you have a big studio movie with a you know a fairly large budget at the time and like you said other awesome actors, uh, you know amazing effects and uh, stunts and creature effects and special effects. And to have your name as the first card, you know you're automatically people look to you as sort of this is your thing. And yeah, there's some responsibility there, but it's also pretty damn cool sometimes. And this movie came along right after, well, not far after they really started getting into the movie rating things like PG-13 and stuff like that. Um, I, I know in the 80s it was, it was still kind of murky where the lines were to be drawn between PG-13 and stuff like that. But I remember watching the movie going, this is pretty heavy for a PG-13 movie. You know, it was that this was this was pretty. I mean, intense in some areas. I mean, you had uh, uh, there's actually people dying in this movie for a PG-13 movie. Right. Like all the cops died. You know. Right. Uh, and, so, and like you said, it was it was fairly new. It was a fairly new rating. Uh, you know, I think they were still figuring it out what could and could not be, and and I think they kind of juxtaposed some things sometimes because you could watch. PG-13 movies at the time, and they're a lot tamer. You could be, see some PG-13 at the time, and they're a lot uh, grittier. Uh, but yeah, we were <laughs> uh, we were we were far from you know some innocent you know goofy campy kids adventure film in the woods. Uh, you know there was def it was definitely a kids adventure movie. It was a kids in peril movie. There's monsters. There you know there's evil you know coming at you in the world and. Uh, and there's a body count, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not small, there definitely was. you know, like you said, there's definitely a body count and, you know, and in particular, I think what they were looking at at the time, uh, was more language, uh, because I know a couple of the original drafts of Shane's script, uh, uh, at, at the, at the end, right before it got redone to fit into PG 13, I think, <laughs> uh, I think there was 
three strategic F-bombs in there somewhere. Oh, nice. And, of course, being a Shane Black script, you're going to have some. Yes. Uh, but it doesn't matter if you were sure. 43 or 13, uh, they still they still count. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> they removed those a little bit, and then they were like, okay, I think this could be PG-13, I guess. But, you know, even the content and what the words on the page that we said and then the things that we were doing and – you know, there, there's explosions and hell. I mean, a vampire thinks he blows up five kids in a treehouse. You know, right. you know, thinks he's exactly. to the body. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty dark. It <laughs> is. It is. Well, it's pretty. Towards, towards the end of the movie, he also he picks up. Uh, he picks up your sister. The virgin. Yeah, yeah the virgin. And he holds girls. your sister up in the air and goes, "He wants the medallion," and he says, "Bitch." Yes. And I'm like. She's like five. <laughs> yeah, and that you know that became one of the half a dozen you know kind of iconic things that yeah. people remember. And you know Duncan Regeer lifting up a five year old Ashley Bank and saying, "Give me the amulet, you bitch." Um, that says a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was just it was just um, an amazing. Uh, I think this movie really was kind of ahead of its time. I mean, I think maybe that's where. It's now gained the following that it has. Probably so. It, it it seems to me like I mean this movie for me was. Uh, it had that feel. This was my first. You know the the, the fan craze with uh, the movie Hocus Pocus. Yes. This is my original Hocus Pocus. Right. Is Monster Squad, and yeah. it has it just appealed to the adventurous kid. You know, it, it could have been anybody having that treehouse or it could have been anybody. We all had groups of friends we used to hang out with and try to get in trouble with. It just seemed to appeal to everybody. And yeah. and I think I just think that it was just almost 10 years too early when it came to how popular it was. I don't I don't disagree. And I think you're right on the right on the nose with why kids were drawn to it and why they related to it uh you know because we could have been anybody like everybody related to one of us or all of us mm -hmm. um you know and, and then i think it set even you know that adventure even further so you went out and you know kids in their neighborhood built a treehouse or built a fort and went on adventures with each other or either by themselves and it, you know i i you know later on down the road like as we're older adults and you know you kind of look back and realize you know, what really kind of stuck, you know, in the story and, and, and in the screenplay and in the dialogue. And it's the archetypes of the, of the people, it's the archetypes of the themes and the situations that, you know, we as humans get drawn to. And as kids, you know, it's really, really attractive. And, you know, like you said, it's, it's that adventure feel, it's that wish fulfillment, it's that heroic adventure fulfillment that we all have as humans and we wish we could experience in real life. And if you can't, then you get to live vicariously through characters on screen or in a book or something, which we all enjoy. Uh, but then it's also sort of, uh, you know, it hits deeper, a deeper chord where, you know, whether whatever character you're, you really relate to, uh, you know, cause Absolutely. we run, we, we kind of run the spectrum there with characters yeah. that you wish that, Hey, I identify with Phoebe or I, 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 I was the Eugene in my group or I always wanted to be Rudy, but damn it, I was really Horace. <laughs> and, um, you know, we get that a lot over the years and we realized how important these characters ended up being to people. Uh, but they all, you know, um, we're, we're all heroes in some respect as a group and then as individuals. And I think that's what we all want. You know, if we ever had an opportunity to, to step up and whether it's, you know, saving your little brother, you know, from getting picked on or saving the world from Dracula. If we all had the opportunity, we all hope that we would step up and, and be the hero. <laughs> and we always love seeing that, you know, on screen. And usually, you know, as we were growing up in the 80s, we saw that with, um, you know, if you watched old movies, you know, it was war heroes and spy movies. But those were all for adults. And there wasn't a lot of that for kids no, until true. you got into the 80s. And then, you know, we had a fantastic slew of kids' adventure movies in the 80s. Some were campy, some were fantastical, some were, you know, unbelievable, some were out of this world, literally. And others mm -hmm. were very, very down-to-earth and gritty and real. And, you know, like, two of two of those examples were the ones that are my favorite kids' adventure movies of the 80s. Uh, and so, you know, it's great to have those kind of conversations as a person that was in other people's favorite kids' adventure movies right. of the time. 
to talk about everybody's fave adventure kids adventure movies. Well, what, what was you yours? Know, yeah, I was about to say you can't leave us hanging oh. on that. I need to know. Oh, um, uh, you have to subscribe. Uh, it's two ninety nine a month to get the answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I sound like everybody else selling something. Uh, no, my um, honestly, my two favorite kids adventure movies of the eighties uh, are, are Stand by Me, nice, and um, Red Dawn. Two incredible, oh, wow. two incredible movies, man. Did two not even see Red Dawn movies. coming. No one thinks Red Dawn's. They go, that's not a kids' adventure movie. And it I go, sure is. Me, it's the, the ultimate kids' adventure movie. It sure is. I was it, thinking like, I was thinking like Explorers. Yeah. Or, or, the, or the, of course, the, Starfighter. the Goonies or, or something like all, that. All great adventure movies. All great. Those are, you know, like I mentioned, some were campy and out of this world, and others were very dark and gritty, <laughs> and and based in realism and. I can't think of any more that really hit home, you know, for That's a true. human experience than Stand by Me I mean, and Red Dawn. Red Dawn. <laughs> I remember, um, I just... remember watching Stand by Me, man, and just being completely blown away by that film as a child, as a kid. You know, like I was, I was so into that movie. So uh, into it was, that movie. was great. It was great. I remember, you know, there's a handful of movies that you remember where and who you were with and when you saw it and what theater. Uh, Stand course. by Me is one of them, and. Um, I even remember that there was a grump, bunch of kids in the front of the theater that were giggling when River Phoenix had his kind of emotional scene. And, you know, the guy next to me or behind me or something told them to shut up. And <laughs> it was great. I just remember that it was yesterday. But, yeah, that movie, you know, really uh, it's a great story and it's about friendship. It's coming of age. It's, uh, you know, getting getting past that awkward adolescence and realizing that some people come in and out of your lives some will stay with you forever and some will fade away uh, and you'll experience all sorts of things as you as you go down the line um, and, and yeah I was it's, it's such a simple movie and it's real good I, you know I had a, a connection to it well because I was a little jealous that I wasn't because I, I screen tested for that movie oh really uh, wow and, yeah it was um, you know I, and you you usually re usually audition if you're a teenage kid and a movie's coming out and they're casting it and you're part of, you know, sort of that, you know, upper 20 percent of the, the, the mass of the kids in that time, you're going to read for it at least. And I went pretty far down the line on Stand By Me and I, I knew it was interesting. And I love the fact that it was set in the 50s because I was really into that, at, you know, right at that time. Sure. And I loved the music and I love the style. Uh, and I love the Americana of it. And yeah. I was learning a lot about that, uh, you know, because my parents are a little older than most of my, you know, contemporary friends, parents by a few years. And so they're a little bit also, you know, 50s music and, and that's were all very, you know, kind of uh, I learned about that at a young age and I dug it. I still love 50s music. It's fantastic. And agreed. wanting to do a movie set in that time and going on an adventure with your friends. And, uh, you know, I read for the. The Teddy Duchamp character. I oh, mean, nice. You know, nice. Uh, Corey, Corey Feldman ended up doing, uh, and I know exactly why I didn't get the movie because Corey Feldman was a fantastic Teddy Duchamp. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's Corey Feldman. All, all those kids are in the in the exact right place, and you have you know new awesome faces like Will and and River and uh, you know Jerry O'Connell and uh, you know it's it's a great movie. Yeah, it, it really is. Absolutely. I, I agree. But speaking of really great movies and things that are that are uh, really creating such a buzz is you, you went from behind the scenes to a lot to, or in front of the camera to behind the camera. Now uh, this project that you have, the Wolfman's got nards. What, I mean, I know what spawned it, but how did it come about? I mean, were you just sitting around with going, you know what, this, this needs to happen. Well, it was really sort of, uh, uh, once it's, sort of germinated and uh, got rolling and happened very quick. But leading up to that moment, you know, was, you know, going all the way back to like 2006, 2007 and realizing that, oh, this is having a little interesting resurgence. This is cool. How neat. This is awesome that people are finally, you know, voicing and, and coming together and saying, we, you know, they like this movie. And we as a cast, you know, like myself and Ryan Lambert and Ashley Bank and, you know, even Fred Decker to some extent early on. We're like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, this is going to last for about a, you know six months or maybe a year, uh, and then it's going to fade away. And I always say, boy, were we incorrect <laughs> in that <laughs> statement. Uh, and I honestly thought it would. I thought it was like, let's take advantage of it and just you know bathe in it for a little bit and 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 have fun. 
I, and boy, and then you know, two years, three years, four years, ten years, twelve years later, we're like, oh my god, we're still doing this, <laughs> and it's just getting bigger and better. And what it was that led up to the idea of a documentary was those years of, of, of meeting individuals over and over again that kept telling these great stories of how they were you know, honestly impacted and, and, and connected to this movie and how it changed their lives. And we thought it was a little bit over the top, you know, early on, but once that sure. didn't fade and once those stories kept rolling in and we met these people and then we saw their families and they were showing it to their kids and it's important. I mean, it, it I realized, um, it, it took a while, uh, but you know, you realize over a little bit of time that this was something that I felt was unique. I was trying not to be biased and, you know, cause I'm, you know, I'm inside that kind of bubble and, I, I realized as I looked around at other events and appearances and, you know, if you go to these big pop culture or genre conventions, you know, there's awesome fans everywhere and going up to, you know, their favorite characters in movies or, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Heather Langenkamp or, or Barry Bostwick or Michael J. Fox or something. And everybody loves these awesome people and they love the movies that they do. But I was realizing that Monster Squad fans were connected in a little deeper way. It just meant something different. Maybe I don't want to say better or more, but it was just different than what I was seeing across the aisle. And and then I started investigating that and 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 looking into it and talking to people, and I realized that their that their stories could be a story because it was different. And these these people were really impacted by this movie that that no one saw in 1987. Right. But then, unbeknownst to us, and including half of those people they didn't realize that a whole other people like them saw it as well. And then they were able to come together and celebrate, you know, as a group. And then it just grew and grew and grew and it spread. And, you know, when the, we did the first cast reunion screening in 2006 at the original Alamo draft house in downtown Austin, nice. uh, we realized we're like, Whoa, this is interesting. And then it started from there. And, you know, it, you know, fast forward until, you know, 2017 ish, uh, is that right? Or 16, 17. Um, I, I, I thought that would be neat because we're coming up to uh, the 30th anniversary year. And we had gone through yeah. two kind of big anniversary years and we knew there was a lot of events to do and appearances to make. And the 30th wasn't going to be any, you know, was probably going to be the same. And my original idea was, hey, let, let's go, you know, because Ryan Lambert and I were, were, we were doing our podcast together and we were doing appearances as a duo and we were going around and working on projects. And I said, Hey, why don't we just like go get, uh, if one of our friends will give it to us, it'd be better, but maybe we'll go buy like a used 4k camera and some batteries. And, you know, we're going on three or four of these conventions this year and we'll tootle around and we'll just interact with some fans and maybe come back to LA and sit three or four or five people down in a chair and interview them and, you know, have one of our editor friends, uh, you know, we'll buy them some beer and a pizza and maybe they'll cut together a little, you know, 40 minute long, short kind of fun, goofy thing that you and I work on and we'll put it on our website, you know, for like a dollar or something. And, um, cool. we'll just, you know, and I, I tried that kind of format one time and we were at this big convention and I brought some people with some gear and it, I looked at it and I was like, no, this just, this doesn't work as, is as, as well. And ironically, right at that time, uh, I had two other projects that jumped off and because I just moved back to L.A. and I was pitching some things. And I had a, uh, a series uh, that was getting uh, uh, contracted up at Lionsgate. Nice. And uh, I had a, another show that I pitched at the same time that we ended up shooting um, starting the, that summer, which was you know six, seven months away, called Short Ends, which I sold to Nerdist. And that, you know, that was a hosted show that Ryan Lambert and I mm -hmm. actually co-hosted. We, we showcased oh. short films and very filmmakers cool. that do them. That's very And nice. I love that project. And so I had these two things that were going. And so the documentary idea kind of, you know, took a sideline for, for a, a number of months. And it didn't really kick back off uh, because my TV show concept was my main drive at that time. And uh, it, it looked like it was going to happen. And it was happening in a big studio for their digital channel. And... Uh, I ended up going, uh, I had lunch plans with, you know, one of, one of my oldest friends that, you know, live in LA and she actually worked at a com company called Pilgrim Studios and which was a big kind of reality show, uh, production house. And I drove in the front of the building to pick her up for lunch. And 
she had said, uh, hey, remember, you know, I'd mentioned that there's like a handful of Monster Squad fans that, you know, work on my floor. I was like, yeah. She goes, well, there's one of them right there. And I said, which one's that? She goes, oh, his name's Anthony. I said, oh. So I turned the car off and said, let's go say hi. And so because we got out of the car and called Anthony over, Anthony Leisner, uh, who was unloading like a, a production truck, came over. I was like, oh, shit, what's going on, man? That's awesome. How are you? Da-da-da. Good to meet you. And we were just chatting. And because of that 30-second delay and interaction, that gave these three other guys time to come down the steps and come out the front door of that building. And they walked right up to us because they knew my friend Jen and they recognized me. And we started chatting. And that was Henry McComas, uh, Wes Caldwell, and Aaron Kunkel, who ended up being the the, the main core along with Shane Patterson um, and a couple others in Wolfman's got nards. <laughs> and nice. We started talking and he's like, wait, you have a documentary idea. I was like, yeah, but my other two projects that I'm actually doing, they're cooler. And Henry was like, <laughs> I want to talk about this documentary idea. He goes, because we're looking at doing some, some stuff like that. I, I think you, you're right. There's an angle there uh, that there's something here with the fan base. The, obviously yeah, I, I think you and I should, uh, should develop this a little bit and take it to the execs and see what they say. And maybe we work something out and I'll be damned. And like two weeks later, we were having a meeting with the executives of Pilgrim media group. And we presented the idea to, you know, the three execs and the main guy. And it took about 15 minutes. Wow. And, uh, you know, I worked out a deal, you know, with my company and, and that studio and we teamed up to make this documentary and we went into production right then. And, about three or four weeks later, we rolled cameras at our first event, and ten months later, we had shot fifty terabytes of footage. Whoa. And uh, Henry had <laughs> cut, cut together an awesome documentary. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so there you go with the uh, the instead of just getting the four K camera and filming a little bit and do forty minutes, you got fucking. Oh my! It's, That's so I, I much tell you, footage I that, and and it takes a while to tell the story, but it's amazing on that day of going to lunch with Jen. Uh, of you know just the timing of it all. That's of, so good. Of delaying dude. and meeting Anthony, who ended up right. working you know production on the dock as well because he was a production guy there. But then waiting, I mean, it was like a 30, 30 60 second delay. Because if we had just sped off and gone to lunch, I never would have ran into Henry and Wes and Aaron, and we wouldn't be talking about Wolfman's Got Nards. Well, see, there you go. So oh, you, what oh. what it is 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 your your um good nature of being such a nice dude was just going to go talk to somebody that's a fan of what you've done you know <laughs> gave you good karma basically like hey look <laughs> i'm gonna go talk to this guy so all these other people showed up you know what i'm saying that's kind of yeah, cool look, that's, that's really it, cool then, then i'll take it i'll accept it and and try to keep trucking down you know that path of, of good uh, of good vibe that's um, pretty awesome man. Just... yeah i think it, it ended up being that serendipitous sliding doors kind of synchronistic timing of that afternoon kind of continued throughout the next year wow know, while we were making this and i couldn't have found a better group of dudes to work on because one they were all fans anyway but they were also really hard workers and really passionate about what they were doing. And, you know, they were production hired guns at this, you know, big, big company. And this was the project that no one felt like they were working. That's cool. And, and, you know, it was just something very interesting. And, you know, I, I felt very lucky and very fortunate, uh, you know, and Henry and I worked really well together right off the bat and everybody just put in a, a, a ton of work, uh, over the next, you know, 10 months and, and, you know, then year really to, put together, you know, a, a, a 90 minute document. We have, you know, we end up having 60 minutes of bonus features <laughs> and, um, you know, it's really tight and it changed. And uh, even at that time, at the early, we didn't know half of the stuff that we were going to end up being on the ground with, cause it came later and including, you know, a 17 city Alamo draft house tour, you know, with Ryan and Ashley and Ashley's baby. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we went to 17 cities in 17 days and wow. You know, not, that's that's taxing enough just as, you know, you know, some kid that was in a movie, you know, 30 years ago. But, uh, you know, to to also bring your production crew and, and, and wear three or four different hats and and schedule stuff and be on the phone for stuff you're planning the week after that. And just putting a whole bunch of stuff together. We all worked really well and really hard for a long time. And uh, yeah, that's I, amazing, you, know, you can't ask for better timing and things to come into place. It was really a unique year. Absolutely. I mean, it, the, the thing that's blowing my mind, though, is you're, you're doing this, this. This whole thing is coming together. It's like you're, it's, it's your Willy Wonka moment. Everything is just <laughs> coming together. It's magical. 
And all of a sudden, you're sitting around of all the lines in the movie, you got the Wolfman as Narts. What what solidified the the title for you at that point in time? This is the one we're using. Well, honestly, it was the first choice very early, and, and then okay. being being smart, you know, kind of creatives and production business people, we said let's let's at least come up with three to five alternate title ideas and, and see if they work better. Uh, and then also because it's always a clearance thing, like you have to be able to, you know, either s- secure or buy, you know, you know, Wolfman's Got Nards as a title for a movie. You have to clear it if it's copyrighted and, and make sure you sure. can use it as a title or something. And it, that that it all cleared and worked out. And we had some other ideas and they're just really what I mean, second place was way down. And yeah. It just means so much. It's instantly identifiable to the Monster Squad. Uh, sure. It's eye-catching if you've never seen or heard of the Monster Squad. You're looking at a list at a festival, or now hopefully if you're scrolling through your you know, uh, Dish Network queue or your Amazon Prime queue or, or uh, your Amazon uh, account queue and, and, and uh, iTunes you know, or Google <laughs> Play, and you've never seen it, and you kind of see this title, it's like, what in the hell is Wolfman's Got Nards? Maybe I got to watch this. Uh, so that was a, that was another part of it as well, and it's a conversation starter. But instantly, for a lot of the you know fans that know what it is, when they didn't know a documentary was being made or they saw it, and they instantly know what it is. Well, yeah, and hands down, it's obviously the most iconic line from the movie. Sure, um, that and you know to, that and to me and scary German guy. You, were, you know, if you were making a you know, a, 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 a diehard documentary, the title would be Yippie Kaye. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, something. yeah, for sure. Uh, sure. It, it, it's instantly identifiable and relatable and recognizable. Uh, and there's no other movie ever made with that title. So it stands <laughs> that's alone. Absolutely true. And, and I, don't, I don't think, I don't think there's another movie in the entire world that says that line. No. And I think it's a very, very bold choice, uh, and excuse the pun, it's ballsy to actually have Nars on a poster <laughs> and, and make other people say it, like actual journalists and people, you know, when you're yeah, introduced. I love it. Or talking on Sirius XM or, or IMDb or Comic-Con or something, and someone's <laughs> got to say Nars. Everybody just gets a little giggle. Yeah, <laughs> that's they, they, awesome. Yeah, that, that was definitely I mean, an 80s term for sure. It was, uh, definitely an 80s term. And it was, and you know, it's, there's always a funny story that I don't, um, you know, I had the script and we were doing that scene. I had never heard that word or seen it in my life. <laughs> and because, you know, I'm this cool kid from L.A., like grew up in the valley and rode my bike and, you know, hopped over, you know, mud dunes and, you know, played video games on, you know, my Atari 2600. Like we were cool. Hell, hell like yeah. I didn't say I didn't say nards. And I, I was like, what is this word? Like maybe it was a word that Fred and Shane grew up with, you know, um, and they're old, you know, they weren't old. They were not much older than we were, which is kind of the point of why the movie works. And <laughs> I, I remember asking Fred, um, hey, man, you know, I just don't um, I don't uh, I don't know this word. I don't like it. I, I feel <laughs> weird saying it like I don't feel cool saying this word. And I remember Fred response. Is, I was like, I was like, can I change it? And that's always, you know, bold to ask. And. Uh, he was like, you know, I'll tell you what, why don't why don't we try it like it is on the page and just go with it? And 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 we did. And I didn't realize what that moment was uh, until I started, you know, having conversations about the line that ended up in the movie, because it's not my character's line. Right. Uh, I right. actually say kick him in the nards. You know, so I'm the first one that says nards in the movie, but I say kick him in the nards. And of course, Horace has the iconic line with the follow up um, and the nard shot, which everybody loves. And um <laughs> There's a story that Ryan Lambert tells um, early on, like before we started shooting, and he told this story, you know, a dozen times, uh, or maybe four dozen times, you know, with crowds and, and audiences and on interviews, and and it and it didn't realize what it meant until I compared it to that day on the set, and he was trying on um, costuming. Uh, before we started shooting, and he had like five or six leather jackets, and the costumers with him, and he put one on, and. He, he, she goes, hmm. And Ryan's like, yeah, I don't like this jacket. Like, I don't, he's like, this doesn't feel, he's like, this isn't me. I wouldn't wear this jacket. And the costumer told Ryan, she goes, that's okay, honey, because you're not playing you. Oh, we're we're creating point. a character here. That's true. And Ryan, at that moment, 
realized, um, he said, "Oh, this is a thing. Like we're making a we're making a move. Like this is a thing. I, I kind of understand how how things go now." And it took me a lot, lot, lot longer to realize that that same type of moment was that moment two months later on the set with Fred when I asked to change the line because it wasn't cool and I would never say that line. And when Fred said, let's keep it as an on the page and then maybe we'll try it differently. But if it works, it works. And what Fred was really telling me, I think, was that's okay if you feel uncomfortable and not cool saying it because you're not saying it. Right, it's it's your character. Yeah, exactly. It's Sean Crenshaw. Yeah, and I realized, you know, way too late, <laughs> you know, decades later, <laughs> that I think that's what happened in that moment. Yeah, uh, a light bulb hit your head. About, you know, only when we're talking about the title of the documentary, and that, you know, it, what if I had changed that? Right. You know, what if we had it? Like, okay, just say, you know, you know, kick him in the balls. You know, I can't make a documentary thirty years later that says Wolfman's got balls. <laughs> it, it doesn't it doesn't work as well uh, i don't know but uh, it'd be it, pretty damn funny <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i'm, I'm uh, certainly grateful to the fact that uh you know it didn't get changed and um I, i've you know fred gave me a learning moment that i didn't it didn't land until 30 years later i think and you know that's okay man. um well speaking of learning moments did did doing this documentary uh did it were you able to did you learn anything new about the movie that you were in that you didn't know ah, before just by good. doing research or listening to fans and things like that uh, while we were shooting it or about uh, uh, monster squad or the documentary the no. documentary itself did you learn anything about monster squad that you were like oh shit i never even realized that Oh man, uh, I I I guarantee the answer is yes. Uh, let let me kind of, you know, you know, peek on it a little bit of, you know, what that might be. Um, you know, besides obviously the 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 first answer is, you know, the impact that this movie had on people, not just fans, but people that worked right. on it and were in it. And yes. until you sit down and you tell those stories or, you know, ask those questions 30 years later with someone on camera, you don't realize the personal impact that, you know, some experience has. And I think probably the, um, you know, something we had kind of known a little bit about over the years, but, you know, the person that has the most personal and the most intimate relationship with this movie is Fred Decker, because it was it was his movie, it was his story. Sure. He co-wrote it, um, and he directed it, and he took all of the blame when it was a box office failure. And then, you know, fast forward 20 years later when people start selling out theaters and celebrating it, but Fred Decker has been in director jail for two decades. Right. Uh, he, he has a very unique, um, and personal and, um, totally valid relationship with, you know, how he relates to this movie and it's delayed success. Um, and I was, you know, was really trying to be conscious of not being exploitative of that. Sure. Um, sure while we're talking with Fred about it, because that interview almost didn't happen. You know, that was, I think our last interview or second to last interview. Um, and you know, Fred's, you know, got this, you know, conflicting relationship with a movie, which he rightly can have. And I think it's very unfair that you go to director jail for, you know, making, you know, a movie or two or three that don't perform because back in the day, you know, your 48 hours of opening weekend is the, is your only barometer of success. And so there's no chance to really have a word of mouth movie or, Hey, I just saw this movie. So come with me, you know, you know, when we get off the playground on Saturday, come, let's go next week and see it together. Cause I want to see it again. They didn't get that chance. Uh, but it did on HBO and it did in the video store, but that doesn't count when you're a professional, you know, those, True. those numbers are invalid. Now they're not, it's, it's a different world. Um, and so I think it was unfair for someone like Fred, but, I think really seeing the impact, not just on the fans, uh, because, the, you know, that's what I was kind of interrogating, you know, over the years of hearing these stories of why we wanted to do a documentary and then actually hearing these stories and realizing that, yeah, this thing impacted people on 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 many different levels uh, and how it impacted people's careers in a good way or a bad way, um, how it impacted people's lives or who they met or who they married or, uh, you know, what jobs they did. I mean, it was it was incredible. <laughs> 
uh, of really how something like a film uh, can connect with people. And in this, in this case, it happened to be the Monster Squad. Man, I remember. Very, very weird. I remember for years. All right, years and years and years. Uh, when the uh, fall of the VHS had disappeared and and DVD was coming around, and I kept telling friends of mine that you know we're also you know big fans of the film. I said, man, I really wish they would come out with this on DVD so we could watch it. You know, it's like I haven't seen it in a long time. I'd love to have a copy of it on DVD. And I remember going <laughs> going to a Walmart uh, and. It's just walking through, and there it is sitting on the shelf, and I almost shit myself, man. I was like, holy shit. I got really loud, and people were, like, looking at me. <laughs> I called my buddy up on the phone. I was like, dude, Monster Squad is in is in Walmart right now. You got to go buy it. So he went, he met me at the Walmart and bought a copy, too. <laughs> and, you know, that's, you know, a lot of people were, were pleasantly surprised, and some people camped out at Walmart and waiting for that truck on the Wednesday night to drop off stuff because they knew it was coming out. Uh, but I think everybody was pleasantly surprised with the success of that that double-disc Blu-ray release, yeah. especially Lionsgate, because yeah. they made a shitload of money on it. Yeah, they uh, did. Um, and, you know, so much so that they didn't realize what they had, and they probably could have made more if they pushed it, but they just kind of, you know, let it run, and they ran out of the... I, I think the, the, the three weeks that it was actually for sale were four weeks that it was actually open in the market, like... They ran out of their first like run uh, that they produced and distributed in um, like three or four days because there was a lot of pre-orders. Uh, stores had pre-orders, right? And it was gone. And they were like, "Oh shit!" Like, okay, let's make another run. So they made another run, and that apparently sold out in like a week. And they're like, "Wow, this is like a thing." So let's make another run, and that sold out in like another week or two. And then they were like, "Okay, yeah, we're done." Yeah. And so for twenty years, no one could get their hand on an updated version of this movie. Unless you had the uh, a laser disc in the nineties, but oh, um, yeah. the, the you know, and then now uh, the the DVD finally comes out and it sells out in a month, you know, in three different run like technical pressings of it, and you can't get it again. <laughs> so it, yeah. it went right back to being a hot commodity, you know, as people were trading it and it was selling for a, a premium. Oh, uh, it's like selling the for a, was going crazy. And it, it sells for a good bit on the internet, man. If you go look for it on online, like eBay, I think you, I think you can get you a, a good copy for like 150 bucks or something. It, yeah, of that of that 2007 Lionsgate version yep. is yep. insane, and it almost depends on which version you have. Whether you get the insert of the original art poster that you can slide over that that redone whatever it is. Yeah. Well, and, the other uh, thing that's overlooked in that movie is is the soundtrack. Oh yeah. Well, the I soundtrack mean, was yeah. the ultimate '80s sound in that movie. I actually owned that soundtrack when it came out. <laughs> yeah, and the what was cool is what was it? No, it wasn't ten years ago. It was probably you know six or seven, eight years ago that uh, you know a group in L actually did. Uh, the whole soundtrack, including the score and the two songs from Michael Sandello. So, yeah, I mean, it was super campy 80s montage music and even, you know, a rap, you know, for yeah. the, mm-hmm. the final credits, um, which is actually called the Monster Squad rap, I believe, you uh, know, by that huge hip hop <laughs> artist, Michael Sandello. Right, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Sandello, yeah. which is hysterical, uh, his biggest hit which most people don't realize was uh, Maniac from Flashdance. Really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He did it, which yeah. actually that song was supposed to be for the movie Maniac. Maniac. The cop, the cop movie. <laughs> oh, yes. that's funny. I had no idea, man. That's really Absolutely. Cool. Which is actually it's a great seen... song. It was a great song. It's a fun song and, and perfect for that time. But Michelson, like, that's a crazy you know, I don't know. It had been. I've always wanted to reimagine those two songs done by. Uh, it, it was one of my dreams for the documentary. Is I wanted the soundtrack to the documentary to be um, those two songs, sure, on constant loop, um, <laughs> but recorded by you know six or seven other different types and current contemporary artists That's in their cool. own imaginings of how they would do that song that's a good so, idea so we're talking like rock until you drop by lady gaga uh that would be fine um or the foo fighters was or the foo the fighters oh yeah <laughs> there you go i just wanted dave grohl and taylor hawkins to bust I, out i was gonna say song. i'm surprised if, if i guarantee if you brought that up to dave grohl he would do it he would do it uh 
I, I, yeah, I, I had big, I had big, I had big aspirations for a lot of stuff with that. Uh, <laughs> but the, you know, the soundtrack stuff and all that, you know, is, is difficult and, 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 and costly. Um, sure. and you know, someone like Dave Grohl may have done it for free, um, which would have been rad. Um, I don't know. He, he's actually married to someone I went to high school with. So, you know, there was that little connection. <laughs> wow, dude, that's oh, cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And the movie also not only had a great soundtrack, was totally awesome, also had the most amazing canine actor, Pete, the dog, who <laughs> somehow was able to go everywhere and nobody knew how he did it. Uh, yes, and uh, that's part of the allure. That's part of the magic <laughs> uh, of how Pete... Um, you know, Pete, uh, you know, got around, uh, except for there is, you know, everybody asks because Ryan has an off camera line. Uh, Rudy has an off camera line. How'd that dog get up here anyway? And it's kind of a tongue in cheek, funny line. Cause it, it, you know, I think while we're making the movie, like the character asks, like, how does that dog get up here? Um, oh, and everybody's yeah. been asking that question for 30 years. <laughs> uh, we actually shot a scene, um, how Pete gets in the tree. Uh, there's a dumb waiter. And so he's on a pulley system and we pull him up oh that's fine um but we, oh, we I just it, it, there was a lot of little like one shots and, and things like that that were you know eventually scrubbed from a final cut because uh, they didn't add to the story or uh you know we're i don't want to say too long because this movie's extremely short it is and now, um, i was but, gonna say the one the one thing i wanted to ask you most and foremost i would say that end er, that end scenes when yeah. you're in the town yeah and everything's going down was was that a, that was a set was it not that was the uh back lot it's called Mid midwest street at warner brothers okay okay uh, if you've seen um about a thousand other movies that have been shot on town square on midwest street uh it's where the music man was shot it's where uh, uh dukes of hazard uh shot um th that church has been in a ton of things uh, that side where the Burger King and the and Wolfman blows up in midair. Uh, that's also the town square for Gilmore Girls and oh, nice. Shameless um, and things like that. So you know it's I just one of those sets, and that's that's what's movie magic. I think it's one also the same set because I, I I watched it not too long ago and I'm staring at the scene and I'm looking at it. Is I think it's the same town square for Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. <laughs> you, you you are probably correct. Probably so. Uh, dude. And, you know, what's very interesting, like, uh, uh, what I think is probably one of my favorite sequences in the movie is, you know, when all that's going down and Dracula shows up and he starts walking mm -hmm. down the street and just, you know, blows through, like, you know, seven deputies. Right, right. And uh, and he's just walking. Like, it's it, it's a great shot. It's it's a great tracking shot. Um, you know, Bradford May was a great DP. Uh, still is a great DP, but you know, back then, you know, that's some really great camera work in Monster Squad that you don't realize is a great camera work. And you know, when he's standing there and he's kind of sizzling, I don't know why he's sizzling like a real electricity, but that was kind of you know a cool effect. But the house <laughs> behind him, when he's going, now that's the that's the facade of the Growing Pains title sequence house. Is, um, really? is it really? That's funny. Yeah, so you just look at all the stuff and 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 you realize, you know, where you are. And uh, that's what's cool about being on movie lots. Well, and, so many questions and so many weird Easter eggs you could probably find in a movie. Yeah. For sure. Th so, there are. I, uh, you know, my, my favorite is, you know, there's that's Warner Brothers proper and then – about a mile down the road is a thing called the Warner Ranch, which is another lot facility with a couple stages and some neighborhoods and um, facades of like, you know, Paris and things like that. Um, the, but like when you're uh, back on Midwest town on the main lot, like uh, across from the, across from the church is kind of like a city hall looking building brick and columns and, you know, any town USA. And right behind that is the facade of, like a European town. And oh. that was the uh, a, a apartment. And across from that was a little cafe where Rick and Elsa hang out in Casablanca. Wow. And oh, wow. so, I mean, you're literally steps away from history, history. history. And, yeah. And then on the, on the Warner ranch lot down the way, you know, there's, it's like neighborhoods and uh, you know, they're very strategically built because the streets usually curve at a, at a, at a certain at a certain degree to where like you can move a camera and be on the same street and not realize, you know, that you're in the same place. And my house where like the car blows up, um, that facade, if you look to your left is the house from the middle, 
um, but you don't see it in our movie. And then uh, behind you, uh, down that street, is the Lethal Weapon House. So no. it's, uh, you know, it's <laughs> all these, and then everything else in the world that's ever been made in a neighborhood. Uh, and it's just all this cool stuff that you know what's there when you know how the sausage is made. That's so that cool. Is so so so, cool. so all right, man. Um, we talked a ton about Monster Squad and all that good stuff. You know. What do you what do you have got going on now? Like what, what what's what's going on with you right now? Like would you have anything in the works or you have something, you know, you're working on that kind of stuff? Yeah, well I mean, uh you know, ironically, you know, we made this documentary a couple of years ago and we had like a 6-month festival run and then about a year and a half of nothing. Well, yeah, um, yeah. Due, due to a number of things and then it finally got released uh in a year of COVID, which ended up putting a bunch of kibosh plans, but uh, we had some delays some were known, some were unknown. Uh, but you know, the movie just came out in October. You know, on you know, all over U.S. and Canada on 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 TVOD, uh, in your your download and rental platforms. And then hopefully, you know, the next stage will be, uh, you know, streaming somewhere. Uh, you can still get a, a DVD or a Blu-ray of Wolfman's Got Nards on Amazon. And so we're still pushing that, promoting that because that's an ongoing thing because it just came out. But right now we're working on the international release too. So Very hopefully cool. all of our fans in the UK and in Mexico and in France and in Spain and Germany and Australia, uh, you know, will get their hands on Wolfman's Got Nard. So that's a, a you know a weekly endeavor right now as well. That's you know kind of first on the list day to day. Um, but I run you know uh, uh, one of the other awesome things is you know um, the. the, the the working relationship and friendship that, you know, got created with myself and Henry McComas working on Wolfman, uh, you know, has led to us working and developing other projects. And Henry's a, a, a really good writer and comes up with great stories. And um, so he's he's written a couple things. Uh, one of them, like we're in this deal where we're, we ran right into the COVID buzzsaw and kind of slowed things down a little bit. But uh, we're uh, I'm a producer on that movie and you know we're trying to lock that down and get our cast attached and you know find a time that we can actually go into production and and get the financing um, uh, locked in um, and 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 shoot that movie because it's gonna be great um, and you know I've got another you know other handful of projects and you know, it's always sort of that uh, um, everybody calls it a grind but it's more of like a you know like a lotto ball spinning <laughs> right here you know right. you just always got to crank the wheel and have multiple things popping around in there because then something pops out and gets done and you don't know which number it's going to be uh and that's really usually how it works um you know always popping down ideas um pitching projects talking with people i, I still love acting you know i love when people call and ask me to be in their stuff um and i love working to try to get other people's creations you know, worked on or done or how I can help in development or creative or production. And it's, you know, it's just sort of that kind of multi multi-pronged vibe, but right now it's getting Wolfman out internationally, continuing to promote it domestically and, uh, getting Henry's movie, uh, off the ground so we can shoot that and, and use that as a, as a, as a, as a catapult for him. And, uh, and just kind of, you know, living day by day. Um, I heard a great thing. I was listening to an, an interview with, with Ted Danson for, for, oh, nice. for all people oh, wow. uh, today on um, the only station that uh, like I'm in the car just goes to, you know, NPR. So I listen to, uh, you know, public radio and interviews and they've been doing a ton of stuff right now. And he was explaining where he was from and, you know, grew up and he's got a fascinating kind of childhood, which is you probably don't realize what it was. And I didn't know it until I listened to this. But someone asked him, you know, prior when he was just getting, you know, prior to getting into acting, you know, were you planning? Like, did you have a desire to get into acting and do all that? And he was like, good grief, no. He's like, no, I didn't. (laughs) I never looked too far in the future or had, you know, like career goals or whatever. And he said something that really hit a button with me as I'm driving. And he said, "I, I didn't live for the future. I lived for the moment. Yeah. And my my focus of each day was I wanted to get out and play with my friends and have adventures and and, and experience the world. And I went, damn it, Ted Danson's my man. <laughs> I was like, I really <laughs> I liked what he said about that because I felt that way ever since I was a kid. And um, I, I kind of feel that same way. It's you can worry about and stress out and fret about what's going to happen next year, or you can really enjoy this afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, um, but you know, you still got to put some, some, some pieces in motion and you got to be strategic and creative and smart and practical. 
Um, you got to be a little crazy to be in this business too. Um, and then you got to get a little lucky every now and then. And so I think if you if you approach it right, good things come to you. If you if if you treat yourself right, you treat other people, uh, you know, better better, you know, than you treat yourself. Um, you know, that good energy will come back to you hopefully somewhere. And I have great friends and I love doing stuff with them. Even if it's just hanging out or making movies with them. And, you know, I don't worry about, um, you know, probably much to my retirement account chagrin. I, I don't worry about too much about the future. <laughs> Cause I could literally be waving to a friend and step out in front of a bus and none of that matters anyway. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and that's absolutely and, true. And it's the best way to look at things. You've got to keep the imagination going. You've got to keep the, the passion going and the, and everything you've got going on seems to involve having a passion for it. And I think it's, that's just awesome. And I think yeah. that's something that a lot of people in or out of the business should, should really remember. It's, it's about the passion that you have, you know, Yeah, no matter if it's your work or your hobby or, you know, something that you want to learn how to do, um, like do it, like try it. You can always not, you can always stop. <laughs> you can always not do that's it. Right. Uh, but just try it, and if something catches, you never know. And and even if it's a side hobby, it's something that adds, you know, to kind of your your existence that could be a positive. Everybody gets really, you know, they they get drilled down with, um, you know, whether it's work or family issues or, mo- you know, obviously money is always the biggest issue. And uh, but I think you know something like this year, you know, with everything shutting down and everybody's in, you know, uh, in, in the in the in some sort of hole, um, whether it's emotional or financial or you know professional uh it kind of you know everybody should kind of reset a little bit and go yeah you know what it's not really worth you know killing off brain cells stressing about it um it, it either happens or it doesn't happen <laughs> that's right that's um, so true, but, but just enjoy every day you just go through life you know flippantly or willy-nilly and you know you know a butterfly lands on your nose and you win the lottery that's not what i'm saying <laughs> um uh if and if you want a butterfly to land on your nose uh then you should walk into a butterfly house and the odds are much greater (laughs) so it's about planning and putting yourself in the right situation the right position to take advantage of an opportunity that may come up stack the deck that's right that's right yeah because if you're not doing it someone's stacking it against you exactly yeah for real (laughs) you can sit around on a park bench and you know wait for that winning lottery ticket to fly through the air and land in your breast pocket or you can go buy a lottery ticket Exactly, man. Well, dude, it was incredible to have you on the show, and like we really appreciate you coming on here. No, I appreciate you having us. Having and uh, you know, this is what's fun. You know, it's uh, it's 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 talking about stuff, promoting things. Yes, you know, you got to plug stuff, but you know, it's about hanging out and meeting new people. And um, uh, I enjoy talking about things that people are interested in that I've been involved in. Um. You know, it's, you know, some people say it gets, you know, don't you get tired about talking about the same thing? I was like, look, each interaction is different. Right. Um, And, you know, the other thing that you look at it some way is, you know, this is what my third podcast of this week, which is, you know, kind of a light week over the last couple of weeks, (laughs) which is nice. But um, I, I, I may have talked about some of the same things. I may have repeated a story or two. Um, but to you guys or to your listeners or to whoever's Netflix, it's their first time. Right. It's all new to us. Yeah. It's all new to us. And so, and that's what it's all about. And it's about sharing and then connecting and being pals after and, and, and people spreading the word about, Hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, Wayne and Justin had this awesome show and like, there's this, you know, weird dude that I never heard of, but now I'm in (laughs) this stuff that he's doing. And, um, you know, he said he used to ride bikes in the neighborhood. Like who did that? Um, (laughs) But, you know, outside? I can't remember his name. What was his name? It was like Erdna Rewog or something. But, um, <laughs> What's, uh, which is my name backwards, by the way. The, don't you don't need to go write it down like that, a value card thing. That's deep kind of Monster Squad. But, that's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know, it's fun. Um, and you know, I enjoy it. And um, but, you know, the other thing that's a, a little bit selfish, um, because you know, people, you know, you know, want your attention. It's great, but. but uh, you know, you have to appreciate it a little bit. Uh, not everybody on the planet, you know, get, gets to do stuff like this. So it's, exactly. uh, it's you have to understand that it's fun. Well, dude, well, you I'm, were... I'm looking forward to seeing Wolfman's Got Nards. Yes. I know that this is all going to be awesome. Well, why don't you why don't you why don't you go ahead and plug that for sure? Like, tell everybody where they can find it, so that way you know, 
Sure. Um, right now, um, you can the, the the best thing to do is either go online to thesquaddoc.com or follow thesquaddoc.com on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, or you can follow myself, Andre Gower Official on Instagram and at Andre Gower on Twitter. Uh, but you know, if you you know like to rent you know rent new releases or digitally download uh, Wolfman's Got Nards if you're a Monster Squad fan, or even if you're not, you just want to see a documentary that's not necessarily only about Monster Squad. That's not what it is. Um, you know, uh, if you have your cable provider or your Dish Network, or you can go on iTunes or Google Play or, or Amazon and just search for. Like I said, that's the other thing where Wolfman's Got Nards comes in handy because there's a, not a lot of search that will get confused. <laughs> With right, other no things, um, so you just you know type in Wolfman Nards and you'll probably come up with it, uh, and you can rent it on you know TVOD or your 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 favorite uh, uh, VOD platform du jour. Uh, if you are a physical media person, you can get the Blu-ray uh, and or DVD at Amazon.com and they'll ship it to you. Um, so either way, uh, you know it's it, it's it's just awesome that people get to experience it and share it. Tell a friend, tell them to go rent it or buy it, or you know. Um, you know, spread the word and people get to, you know, get to enjoy it. And that's what it's all about. You know, there's not a giant PR machine behind it and, you know, booking me on, uh, you know, Bill Maher or the Today Show or Dr. Oz to talk about this movie. So it's going to be guys like Wayne and Justin and their listeners and their friends in the neighborhood. Um, and, uh, you know, shouted across the, you know, Pontchartrain Bridge and, you know, there it is. Let them know. So that's that's the only way it gets out there. That's it, man. Absolutely. Well, dude, like I said a million times, thank you for coming on the show, Andre. Whenever you're ready to come back on the show, man, you are more than welcome. Uh, I I will. I, as soon as we get off here, I'll send you another date to come on if you want. You know, we're always welcome and it's been a, you know this it was has fun. Been amazing because it's great. I've always wanted to talk to you about about your movies and and your career, and you've been in so many things that we didn't even hit on. Right? I mean, uh, yeah, that's thing. true. Yeah, usually people go deep deep down, but yeah, we we had some good I'll talks be... about other stuff. Let's let's do it again and do a follow up. Yeah, because because sure. yes. we cause we got some deep cups we can get into. So, um, oh, love it. Let's do it. Absolutely. But uh, so thanks again, and um, ladies and gentlemen, I was your host Wayne. I'm the rum guy. And remember to keep it little Mama. Okay then. That's it. Get the butt.